it's always so great to come together and talk about our relationships. And especially, we're all in different places and all experiencing different growth, different moves of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our relationships. It was so powerful to hear about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something we'll never get away from, right? Everybody's always trying to have that last place of forgiveness. Everybody wants to be done with forgiveness, but it's not going to happen. Christ continually forgives us, and so we are to continually forgive those who we love, those who we see, those who offend us, those who hurt us, those who have marred us, those who have done things to us in our past, those who have uh, left us in a broken place. I so appreciate you sharing that. I so appreciate you bringing us into that. Can we take a moment and just let the Lord do that work in our hearts? Let us embrace and seal that place of forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that you continue to speak to us about forgiveness. You continue to move in, in, into those deeper places in our hearts, those places where you want us to be healed by your power and by your grace. It's not by what we can do, but it's by what you have already done, as Pastor Tracy said. But our part is to act upon it, to forgive. So we take this moment now. And we forgive. We know those people who came up in our minds. We know those situations that spoke to us. And we take it right now. We do it like Pastor Tracy said. It's quick. It doesn't have to be a 200, 300-page book. It's quick. It's releasing and letting you heal. And we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, I'm Cynthia, and my handsome husband, Brett, here. We're going to talk to you about what God says. Um, Pastor Daryl and Tracy have said, he said, she said, but so much of what God says. There he said, she said, are filled with what God says. And what does God say? What does God say about our relationships? God says a lot. (laughs) And I will not be able to tell you everything God says, and that's the good side of this. That's the good story because it's in the good book and we get to read it and we get to learn more about what he says all the time. But I do want to talk about um, three things with regards to relationship and what God says about that. I remember when I was single, a believer, and um, just really looking forward to having a Christian boyfriend. Really wanted that. Isn't that a sweet thing to think about when you're a believer? A Christian boyfriend. Oh, my gosh. Because it's scary when you think about it. Now, for me, it was. I was a little, I guess, a little shy in some ways relationally. So I wasn't really one of those girls who was just so proud and go-getter about guys. So and there are a lot of things that kind of scared me or kind of made me unsure and made me feel unstable. That was before I was a believer. And then after I became a believer, guess what? That stuff came with me. It crossed right over. My heart was fully devoted to God, but some of those concerns and some of those fears were still there. But I wanted a Christian boyfriend. I knew that marriage was in my future. I just knew it because I couldn't shake it no matter what. Like Brett says about the call of God, if you can do anything else, 
do it. Well, I knew marriage was in it. I didn't know how God was going to do it, but I knew marriage was in it. And so I was having to face some of the things that had been in my life before I was a believer and how they were going to affect me as a believer. Some of the stereotypes, some of my uh, ideas of who I would actually have as a mate or as a boyfriend, my standards were so low. They really were, and it wasn't because of anything other than I didn't know who I was in God. I had gotten, I had gotten redeemed and forgiven and washed in the blood, but I didn't know who I was in God. So I didn't really know how to look or accept a Christian boyfriend. So my first thought was, any guy who's a believer who says, I like you and I want you to be my wife, probably is okay because he falls in the parameter of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's how baby I was. That's how I was like, oh, okay, he, he knows God. He's walking with God, so that's probably it. Well, God was like, no, that's not it. Let's do some work. And this is where I get these three points. And it comes from Exodus. It's the story of Moses. There are three points I want to share with you. And one is about rescue me anoint or deepen my relationship and welcome my relationship to the land flowing with milk and honey. So here I am serving the Lord and anticipating a boyfriend and expecting God to bring that in my life. And then God begins to show me something. He begins to show me myself, and he kind of starts to parallel it with the story in Exodus. And I'm going to take my scripture text from Exodus chapter 3, two verses. One is verse 9, and the other one is verse 17. So verse 9 says, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are are oppressing them. And then in verse 17 it says, So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. So the first thing that I want you to recognize about what took place in my life prior to God giving me my Christian boyfriend was crying out. And we'll start with my first slide of crying out. So we see the children of Israel were crying out to God. They were under oppression. There was a leadership, a rulership that did not have any regard for our God and was making them servants and keeping them in bondage and they were unable to freely practice their faith and their freedom that was in God. And this is an Old Testament story. Well, for me, that's what it was like. All of my years of growing up, I had been taught things. I had seen things. I had listened to wives' tales or, you know, the ladies chatting on the corner about what guys were like and how you just have to accept things and, oh, you know, you're probably never going to find a good guy. All these negative things were coming my way and were filling my soul. And a lot of insecurities were surrounding that. And they were leading me and guiding me into relationships or leading me and guiding me into what I thought were good relationships, what I thought would be a guy who was loving the Lord and would love me like he loves the Lord 
or, or how I would behave in a relationship with a guy who was, who was a Christian. And quite frankly, it was pretty nerve-wracking because one side of me was fully redeemed and was like, I know God is good. But the other side of me was, oh my gosh, how do you do this relationship thing? How do you keep it pure? How do you walk with God? How do you honor him? How do you pray? How do you keep the Bible? Because a lot of growing up and a lot of the examples I'd seen, they were separated. You could walk with God, but once you got your relationship, it's like it went on a whole different track. You know, things were going on that used to be going on when people were in the world. And it's just the strangest thing because you're trying to find examples, trying to find models of how to do it, but the majority of them have a, a two sides of the street that they're walking on. Well, that's called the bondage. That's called the bondage of being um, under oppression, being under the dictatorship of something greater than ourselves. And in my case, my old life, the tricks of the enemy, the curses that were on my life, the lack of identity, the lack of knowing who God is and who I was in God, and the lack of knowing his word, like what Pastor Darrell said, knowing his word, knowing what he's saying to me. So as the children of Israel did, they had to cry out. They had to cry out to God. And they cried out for a long time. So sometimes we think when we cry out for a week or two days, well, sometimes we think if we cry out one time. (laughs) We're like, I cried out. But they were crying out. And you see the agony in this picture. I mean, it's probably more excessive. Imagine being oppressed by someone who you can see oppressing you. Then you are really energized to cry out. But when you can't see your oppressor, you kind of lose sight of it. But then that is all the more reason to cry out to God. So there we see the children of Israel crying out. What happened when they cry out, cried out? They were in bondage. Can you show my next slide? They were in bondage. See the, the example of this bondage around their arms? Just can't do what they need to do. I can't relate in my relationships I don't know whether I should flirt, or whether, which I was no good at. Don't know if I should, you know, give in to everything he says, which Brett never propositioned me in that way. This is all pre this relationship. Um, don't know whether I should, you know, act up, or should I go be like the other people, drink with him, you know, or try to do something to impress him in my own strength, in my own background from the things I've learned, the things that were keeping me in bondage or the things that I'd seen. And we see that God was telling the children of Israel, I hear your cry and I'm going to set you free. I have an answer for you. I have an answer. And in relationships, God has an answer. He has the answer for us. And I think a big part of the whole thing with relationships is we don't cry out to him about them. We don't let him go ahead and take that relationship we have and work on it and treat it the way he wants to treat it and clean it up and direct it and guide it because most of the time it's too sacred to us. I wanted this Christian boyfriend. I wanted this Christian boyfriend. You can't touch it, God. You can't touch it. You might take it away from me. But that's not how God works. He touches us so that he can touch our relationships and bring us into this place. So the first thing we see is we cry out and God begins to set us free. He sends Moses in for the Exodus and he does it through miracles. 
Now, here's the disconnect. Why do we think God doesn't want to work miracles for us? He does. He works these personal miracles. They may not be like healing the lame or the blind like we've seen before, but he does things to set us free. He brings things into our lives to set us free. Sometimes we don't have the strength in ourselves. Most of the time we don't have the strength in ourselves to to get free. But God is the one who sets us free. So he'll start working things out when we cry out to him in our relationship. He'll start setting it up where he'll say, you're going to have a conversation about getting drunk, being sloppy drunk. You're going to have a conversation about this because that's not what I want you to do. And that's not what I want you to feel pressured to do. That's not what your identity is. You're going to have a conversation about premarital sex. You're going to have a conversation about adultery, about infidelity, about trust. You're going to have a conversation about the anger you have about your past. You're going to have a conversation about those things that you've been holding on to that are untrue. You're going to have a conversation about your idols. God wants to have these conversations with us. And when he has these conversations with us, we start to see the miracles happen. The miracles will happen both inside of us and outside of us. And that's what I want to introduce to you. He wants to work on our behalf in terms of our relationships. He wants to work his miracles where we feel our hearts change. Just like Pastor Darrell said, he said, there's nothing greater than the change that happens inside of us. There's nothing greater. And so when God sees our affliction, he comes to us. And we might as well face it. Relationships can be an affliction for us. They can lead us into a lot of things that we don't want to be in. And they can cut the light off in our lives. The second thing is God. So God wants to rescue us. That's what I call God's heart to rescue us when he hears us crying out. So the first thing is cry out to God. Just cry out to him about your relationship and let him do what he did for the children of Israel. Let him begin to set up these plans and these miracles in your life and in your relationship so that you can see yourself get brought to the next place, which is the anointed place or the place where it's deeper in your relationship. So once we've gotten through the place of getting the bondages off of us, we get to get into the anointing, which is the the goodness of God on our lives. It's him being present with me and him being present in my relationship. How does God do this? He took the children of Israel through the wilderness. He didn't take them to dinner. He didn't get them a big old bouquet of flowers. He didn't say, come to the strip club. He didn't say, I made a nice bed. He didn't say, I I got a lot of dollar bills. He said, come to the wilderness. (laughs) He said, come to the wilderness. And this is so good because we really, those other things I just said, they will will totally um, separate us from God. They bring sadness. We're looking for joy. We're looking for this land flowing with milk and honey. This other track brings us into this place of, of being more lost, of being sadder, being further away from the love that God wants to give us in a relationship. But he says, come into the wilderness. 
And when, we, when he brought the children of Israel into the wilderness, I loved it so much when you said it's 11 days and it took them 40 years. Lord Jesus. 11 days. It's like it's right, you know, right the drive across to the West Coast or something. You know, and 40 years, merciful God. So it's a long time to be in the wilderness. But our, our relationships get stuck sometimes in the wilderness. Because we're standing at a place and what do we start doing? We start looking back and we start wanting to go back to the oppressive place we were just at. To the wrong thinking. To the broken relationships and the broken heart. We, sometimes we look like we, honestly, we look like sometimes we want abuse. I'm not, I'm not justifying that. I'm not saying that that is a thing across the board. But I'm just saying sometimes our souls are pretty cracked, pretty broken in a way. And our history is pretty messed up that we thrive on it. We thrive on the drama of it, you know. And when we do that, we, um, we here again, we miss the point of what God is doing in a getting my Christian boyfriend. <laughs> Remember, I want my Christian boyfriend. So God takes us to the wilderness and he starts to deal with things. This is the, these are those deep places where he starts to go in and say, why do you do that? Why did you do that? Why are you contemplating doing that? Why aren't you looking at my word? Why aren't you reading? Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you being still? Why aren't you acting like a Christian? Why aren't you desiring the truth? Why aren't you treating him in a holy way like a brother? Why are you choosing that outfit? You know, things like that, that really are sort of in that working of where we come from that working of the sinful life we lived in the past and quite honestly everyone it doesn't matter if you lived a wild and crazy sinful life this stuff can come up out of nowhere at all seemingly but it is tucked way back in there you know how you hear about the recessive genes and stuff it's this is a spiritual dna recessive work that is not good. It's on the other side of things. So it'll just pop up. It'll flare up. And these are the things that God takes us into the wilderness about because he wants us to get closer to him. He wants to anoint us and our relationship. God wants this for us. He wants his presence on our relationship. He wants it to be an example. He wants our hearts to be full. He wants it to be whole. So he brings us through these difficulties of making some hard choices sometimes but more importantly, of gaining our strength and gaining our relationship with him, getting closer with him. And then when we do that, we see also with our relationship with our significant other, it begins to take a more solid path. You know, I like the scripture that says he, he uh, makes the crooked road straight and he lays a path out in front of us. That's what he was doing with the children of Israel. He was like, I'm going to take you somewhere. Just follow me. Just do as I say. So don't look back when you're on this path. Go ahead and make that decision. You know he's brought you out of something. Go ahead and be okay going through the wilderness and letting him do this deep sanctifying or cleansing or relational anointing that he wants to do in our soul. He wants to bring his presence there. He wants to bring it with the Holy Spirit. He wants to bring it with us learning the word of God and letting it become a part of us. He wants to do it with his great and precious promises, which is where he leads us next into the land flowing with milk and honey. 
When I was thinking about my Christian boyfriend, I was thinking about the land flowing with milk and honey. I really was. It was like I wanted to be all that. I mean starry-eyed. I wanted that. I was just like, I wasn't a person who was obsessed with relationships and obsessed with marriage, but I thought, Lord, if this is going to be for me, I really want it to be the good one. I want it to be the right one. And I feel very blessed. I feel exceptionally blessed. But the land flowing with milk and honey. So we think about that. And this is my last point. And we can see here this picture kind of gives you an overall sense of everything around it being beautiful and harmonious and complementary and all of these things. But the milk and honey, the milk to nourish me. Once I'd gotten through the wilderness, I started to understand the sincere milk of the word of God. I started to want it. I started to desire it, to crave it. It was what was growing me up. It was what was making my spiritual woman into who she should be. It was what was feeding my soul and my purpose. The milk, the honey. You know, honey is so sweet. Solomon talks about his, uh, the Shulamite's lips being like honey. Honey is so sweet. We should expect this in our marriages and in our relationship. We should expect it if you're in a, a courtship or a dating or headed to marriage. We should expect this. The wilderness experience is probably going to be more prominent before you get married. But you will get some honey in there. But the marriage, you get, <laughs> the marriage, the honey seems to flow more, right? There's honey with God, but what I'm talking about goes, you know, both ways here. <laughs> yeah, it does. The honey. But that honey also goes back to a thing that the strawberries are talking about. If there's not sweetness, there's bitterness. So when we go into this promised land, that bitterness is not a part of it. It's just not. So when we cross over into these relationships where I know this is the one, I know this is it, and yes, at the altar, you know, I'm there, I'm saying yes to this man, I'm going to marry him. I don't need to bring my little bag of bitterness, not into the land flowing with milk and honey, not the promises of God. They won't fit there. They won't work there. It's going to cause us to be at each other's throats. It's going to cause us to be at odds with each other. Bitterness is bad. It's a root, bad root for the soul. And it will destroy the soul. So a lot of times when we're looking for that promised land and we're looking for that good relationship, we've got to check that bitterness. We've got to go back to God and say, hmm, okay, this is going to be a hard one. And sometimes we've, we get so close, like Daryl's talking about, out of that wilderness. And then we realize, oops, okay, let me just go back just a few more steps here. I got some bitterness, Lord. I got some bitterness, and it is a hard one. So we want to get rid of it because we don't want to bring it with us into our marriage. And so when we stand at the altar, which is really what we want to do, that's what these relationships are about. When we're at the just getting to know each other stage, it's of a deeper interest when we're a Christian. Remember, a Christian boyfriend. In that, to me, that meant a Christian boyfriend meant a Christian husband. That's what that meant to me. And that's what I wanted. And that's how I treated it. And that's how I engaged in it. I didn't want to mar myself, and I didn't want to mar him in that relationship. I didn't want to go into something that was good and make it bad. 
So I had the fear of the Lord on me when Brett and I were together. The fear of the Lord. I was like, I don't want to do this. This is, God, you're so good. You've done so much, and you continue to do so much. I don't want to stop you, and I definitely don't want to ruin someone else. So think about it. It's more than just me who's sinning. There's a ruin, there's a possibility to ruin somebody else's life. And so I went to the altar. My sweetheart said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. I went to the altar, and my promised land was already overflowing in my heart. I had peace. I was pure. I had joy. I had, was not second-guessing anything. I had total confidence in who he was. I trusted him. He had not crossed the line on me. He had not violated me at one point. He had only shown me the best, utmost of care, the utmost of respect. I was desirous of him. I was desirous to have his children, to see my life and my future with him from that day to the time we go to be with the Lord. That was the promised land of relationship. So that's my prayer for you, and that's my thoughts of what God says about relationships. What, I can sit down? Oh. <laughs> can I sit, should, you want me to sit here or back down there? You, you, you may sit wherever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sit down there. I can see, I can see him better. <laughs> do that. Do that. Do that. She did talk about honey, so I thought. (laughs) Great job, dear. Great job. Great job. I'm going to be fairly brief, and uh, the passage of Scripture upon which I'm going to concentrate is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm not going to read the entire passage. It basically is the most comprehensive uh, treatise on how a man and a woman ought to treat one another. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 9, talk about the the relationship between a husband and a wife. Please go back and read that. Um, But but I want to, to, before I get into the message, kind of highlight what Cynthia ended on with respect to bitterness. Uh, Tracy had a, had a fabulous word, and there, there, there are always good things that come from everything that's said from the Bible, but every once in a while you, you hear something that you know that is for a bunch of people at the same time. It's not just for one or two. It's a congregational word, and I don't want anybody to confuse the idea of enduring pain with the need for immediate forgiveness. So... Tracy concentrated on forgiveness and trust, and they are two different things. But in the middle of that is how do you deal with your pain when I don't feel like I can forgive? Can I still forgive? Healing is different than the decision to forgive. So God can begin the process of healing after you make a decision to forgive. And in fact, that decision to forgive is, is absolutely critical to your process of healing. 
So you will begin to feel better at some point after you forgive. But if you don't forgive, you will not feel any better. Time heals nothing. Time is a unit of measure. You might as well say, I'll put a ruler on my life and see if it works. It's just a unit of measure. It's what you do during time that changes your reality. And if you choose to forgive, which, is, which, which simply means this. The word in, in the Greek is ephesus, which was used for, it was a nautical term, that you would literally take a boat that was tied to a dock, unleash it, and let it go. A decision. You're not going to allow that sin from that person to attach to you anymore. You're going to let it go. It no longer has any relationship to you. As a result of that, then you aren't dragging that thing around with you every place you go. That weight is no longer a part of you. And having lost some weight, you can begin to adjust your life differently and see things differently. And the healing process can begin. Some of you need to get with a small group leader, a marriage counselor, a marriage mentor, somebody who's a little bit further along in life than you, and say, please, could you pray for me? I've forgiven him. I've forgiven her. But I still hurt, and I don't know how to get Jesus to heal me here. I, I know he can. I just don't know how he's going to do it. So could you walk me through the process? But... And that's all I'm going to say about that, because I just did not want you to confuse your pain with the immediate need to forgive. And somehow think, well, if I'm still in pain, how can I forgive? Two separate things. I want to talk to the unmarrieds for a minute. We've had a a good moment with the the marrieds. Um, And this will apply to the marrieds, so do do not turn your hearing aids off. Listen to what I'm saying. This will help you. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he's talking to them about how to best relate to one another. Male and female. Husband and wife. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee immorality. Flee. That in the context of folks that were actually frequenting people that worked at night. Flee immorality. Many of you were involved in that in the past, but no longer should you be. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that you are not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, he uses a couple of metaphors here that are important for us to understand. He's not mixing them. He's just adding one to another. He says, flee immorality and that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whenever somebody built a temple, they were building it for whatever God they thought would actually house there, live there. When Solomon built the temple, when Moses erected the tabernacle, they were... They were believing that God was going to abide and call this spot on the planet his home. When somebody lives in a house, and Paul is trying to make this point, that house is theirs. They occupy it. They get to say what happens in that house. 
Ownership allows him the privilege of saying what is done with that house, what occurs in that house. And then Paul moves on to say, you have been bought with a price. Meaning that the, the house in which the Holy Spirit lives, that is you, is his, not yours. He is not renting you. He's not visiting you. You are not a timeshare. Your body is his. You have no rights to it except those which he gives you. Anytime you choose to do something outside of his will, you are stealing. You are taking privileges with stuff that is not yours to use as you wish. He prescribes ways that this body is to be used because it's his and he has every right to do so. And he does so not to be a killjoy, but to help you, to strengthen you, to let you know that there are things that are going to cost you if you don't do it the way he said. And you may not feel it now, but you will pay later. We are to be people that consider ourselves those who are not our own. So you can't do what everybody else does. You can't act like how, how everybody else acts. You can't think like everybody else thinks. You can't say how everybody else says. You don't have that privilege. You've been free. You've been freed in order to do and be what God wants you to be. And one of those freedoms, couples, is that you don't have to have sex until you're married. I said it that way intentionally. I did not say you can't have sex until you're married. You get to not have sex until you're married. You get to. Because he said flee immorality, and that word flee means to run in stark raving terror. <laughs> run, run, run. Not, I, I, I know. We live in a different time, right? Those people in antiquity, they don't... They didn't have the same kind of understanding we have of relationships. They, they, they didn't know how, how, how folks really ought to relate because parents kind of joined them together and it was the first time them being together. And, and then, you know, they didn't date. They didn't go to a movie. They had the same Adam and Eve living on the inside of them that you do. Same problems, same issues. And you get the privilege of glorifying God with your body. Now, some of you might say, Pastor, that, that ship has sailed. Like, it's, I call it Magellan. It's gone all around the world. It's docked at every port. <laughs> that, that, that ship done long gone, Pastor. I mean, you... <laughs> but listen, there is never... A bad time to make a great decision. Simply because you blew it once doesn't mean you have to keep blowing it. And so you can glorify God with your body today. And those of you who have, who have had the privilege of waiting, there are not many because everybody says it's okay. It's just sex, isn't it? No, it is so much more than that. So much more. God does everything that he does with respect to promises 
by way of covenant. It's not just his word. It's his deed. He doesn't just say he loves you. He dies to prove it. There is blood that is spilled every time a covenant is ratified. Every time God ratifies a covenant, blood is spilled. Now, in the Old Testament, it was the blood of an animal because he didn't want people to die. The animals substituted for the people who should have given their life for this covenant to be ratified because the only way it could be ratified properly is if the person who was making the promise that was human died because they couldn't keep it anyway. And so God said, I know you can't keep it, and you aren't even worthy of making the, punish, the, 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 the promise, but I am going to now make sure that this thing is ratified by using an animal in your stead. So, so the, 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 the idea was, this promise is costing you your life. When we talk about marriage, there's, there's a little, there's, there are anatomical things that God set up to allow covenant to be ratified. And the woman has a hymen. Why except that blood is shed? That's what that's for. Not only the proof of virginity, but for a covenant to be between one person and the other for the rest of their days. No, it is not just sex. It is deeper than that. It is the greatest, the greatest show of commitment other than what God made to us on the planet, that between a man and a woman who has said, I will be with you for the rest of my life and no other till the day you die. My covenant shall be sure, and I will make it with no other. That's what it means when you say, I do. And I had the privilege of doing that with my bride 30 years ago in December. Coming to the altar, having not been with any other. Gosh, I don't have memories. I don't have faces I put on her when we're intimate. I don't have other experiences with which to compare. We've grown together. Did we know what we were doing in the beginning? <laughs> no clue. You say we got to kick, you know, kick the tires and take it out for a test drive. What for? What the heck for? Are you so insecure that you cannot believe that God can mature you together in the process of relationship that you got to figure it out without him? You're not that good, and you won't learn that much. You won't learn any more. In fact, you'll, you'll damage some things. You won't learn any more than you would have if you had waited till after you say, I do. That's for all the people who have waited. I want to say you got a prize on the way. you got a prize on the way. And it's not just for you. It's for your children. For your children. Now, I don't, want you, I don't want you to get the impression that somehow there needs to be a metal pinned on my chest because I waited. Um, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't a woman. I, I, didn't, I didn't run after a whole lot of stuff. 
I wasn't pure and that I did some stuff I shouldn't have done. But I was a virgin when I got married. But it wasn't because I was so holy. It's just I had a mama. She beat me. <laughs> she just beat me. She just, you will wait. You will wait. You will wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. But I waited. And I waited long enough to, to where I got right with God. And I thought, oh, thank God I waited. I didn't know what I was waiting for, but I'm, I thank God I waited. So all of you who are waiting, there's a prize. And, and you, get, you get to hand it to your children. You get to say, when they ask, um, you, you know you're requiring to say, now, make sure, you know, you shouldn't, um, you, you have that talk that's uncomfortable. And, and, and you, 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 know what they're, you know what you're trying to say. They know what you're trying to say, but n- nobody ever really says it. Because <laughs> you don't know how to have the conversation. But in the midst of it, they're thinking, the child is thinking, okay, I know what you're trying to tell me, but when you were my age, did you? And they don't want to ask the question because they don't want the answer. They don't want to hear you say, no, I didn't, because that just messes them all up on the inside. They think you and dad are the only two. And then they think, ah, that messes up their brain. But you want to be able to say with confidence, yes, I waited. It's an inheritance you can give your kids. Now, for those of you who have not, and you've already let that horse out of the barn, I want you to know, again, there is never a bad time to make a good decision. And you can say this as an inheritance to your children. I wasn't right with God. But when I got right, I waited. I kept myself pure. I can't excuse anything I did in the past simply because I I, I wasn't right with God. I should have known better anyway. But now that when when I got right, now that I was right, I said, I'm going to do it right. And now, those of you who have been right and still do it wrong, I have a message for you. You can make a demarcation point as of October 15th when you went to a marriage couple seminar and you heard a little black man say, stop. Stop, stop, stop. Never a bad time to make a good decision. Build some kind of testimony. Start someplace and live right. Not just for your... Listen, I've talked about the benefit that comes between two people and then what it means to your children. But Paul ends with this. Therefore, glorify God with your body. If you can't figure out a good reason whereby you think it's justifiable enough to stop because somebody else might be hurt, you might be hurt, your kids won't benefit, just do it because God said so. And for some reason, people are ashamed of being pure. They don't brag about it. They don't don't talk about it. They don't talk about it because our society shames people for being pure. They think it's naive and stupid. You need to testify. You need to have some kind of testimony. And and let people know how important it is to live this way. Mm 
because virtue has sprouted wings and flown away in our society. Purity is, is only mentioned when we talk about water. No other time is it ever valued. Let it not be so in the church, in your life. Value purity, holiness. It's a beautiful thing, and it doesn't need to be hidden. Don't you light your lamp and put it under a bushel. I'm not talking about you wear a sign that says virgin. No. But in the right context, when folks are bantering around about their exploits, you say, by the way, I don't. Now the first question they're going to ask is, are you... Do you, I'm just asking, no judgment, just, but do you, do you bend left when everybody else bends right? No, I'm straight. I am straight with respect to loving God and making sure that my life is in line with his word. I'm not turning to the right or to the left. I want to do this right. And I realize you don't understand it and you think I might be weak or somehow less than a man for talking to you about my purity. But it takes, a, it takes a little bit of strength to say no on the regular, especially when you got opportunity. It takes a little bit of strength. Don't hide your lamp under a bushel. Share it. Because people need to know what the standard can be. They need to know. The Corinthians... After this passage in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to close now. I've taken longer than I wanted to on that point. After the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, it goes to 7. The Bible was not written in chapters. And, and, and Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, which means the Corinthians had some questions about how in the world people are supposed to relate to one another, male and female. How's this supposed to go? And the, the entire chapter 7 is about how a female and a male should relate. In marriage, outside of marriage, what a man ought to do with respect to his daughter and whether he should give her in marriage or not. Paul gives his opinions. Yet when Paul gives an opinion that is canonized as scripture, we then think that it is one of the holiest opinions you can have. And he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, for those of you who are couples... Do you ever make any inquiry as to how your relationship should function best? Do you have somebody about whom you ask questions? How should I do this? Or do you think you got it? Now, I'm glad you're here because this might be the first time you've ever together kind of, kind of put yourself in a position, postured yourself, whereby you are by your presence saying, I need help. That is good. But don't let this be the only moment. Let somebody in your life begin to, to, to help you understand how to relate to that person best and honor God in your relationship. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, I think it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It's one of these, look, mom, no hands. No hands. You actually got to talk to one another. You got to, 
You actually got to talk to one another instead of doing other stuff with your hands. You got to communicate. The pressure is on now to relate at a different kind of intimate level than the physical. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's talking about couples now. He's talking about relationships outside of marriage where people are trying to get together. It's good for a man. And the word touch there actually means more than just hands, to light her fire. So you may have some good game. <laughs> you know I mean, you're, you're, the words that come out of your mouth, mouth might, leave, might be like butter. And every woman, I mean, she, you know, she's taken back a little bit by the first couple of lines, but then she listens to you a little bit more, and all, you just sense, oh, yeah, he's nice. You might have some serious game. But if you light a fire before it's supposed to be lit, you're trespassing. You're going on territory you shouldn't. There ought to be a way. Now, if you want to figure out a way to relate beyond what the Bible says, tell me how that works out for you. Just let me know. God has the best prescription. He, he knows exactly how things work well, whereby he doesn't have to fix what we break in the process. He knows. And so you, it'd be good if you just followed what the Bible says. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so if you're relating to one another, again, build a testimony beyond just we chose not to sleep together or we chose not to sleep together at a certain point or we stopped. If you have the privilege, figure out a way, like Paul tells Timothy, that men ought to treat women who are not married as sisters. And women who ought to, ought to treat men who are not married as brothers. I don't know what that means for you, but it's Bible. I'm not trying to legislate how in the world you hold hands or whether you kiss. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying figure out a way to obey the Bible at the highest level so that you can glorify God with your body. You say, that sounds real Victorian. I don't know that the people in that era in the 1700s had it right either. I don't think they did. I'm just trying to be Bible. Now, lastly, double lastly, <laughs> the passage that I mentioned in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul goes through two different categories there, and this is to the marriage, though it does relate to anybody who is in relationship. One, how women ought to relate. And this passage, along with the one in Colossians, along with the one in Ephesians, are the passages that women just don't like at all. Even the ones that obey the Bible with all their heart don't like this passage. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. There's a bristling that just happens in every woman's soul. Because they, they realize two things. I'm smarter than him. And two... God really didn't know who I was going to marry when he said that. <laughs> now, they don't say it like that, but, but they think, do you know who I'm with? You want me to submit to that? And then he goes through and talks about how women ought to adorn themselves, which is another passage that women don't like. But this has nothing to do with whether you ought to wear makeup or earrings or do your hair or look pretty. It has everything to do with where you take the, your security from, the place from which you find all of your identity. 
You don't do it in how you make up or what dresses you wear or the, the jewelry you put on. Not there. Please look nice however you wish. No, not right. Please look <laughs> nice in the best way possible. But it has nothing to do with you not being able to wear what, what is beautiful. But the issue is this. Why is Peter talking to a group of women that they feel in such a way that they feel they need to find their security in how they dress, how they appear? What is it that's going on in the home whereby they don't feel secure enough in their own house that they have to do this in order to please their husbands? Gentlemen, that's on you. That's on us. How often do you tell your wife she's beautiful? How often do you tell her, there's nobody that attracts me like you? I tell my bride all the time, when you walk away, I'm looking. <laughs> You're the most beautiful thing in my eyes. And that's without makeup. When she's got her house shoes on and clothes, pajamas that don't match. They don't match. She just puts stuff on. Layers stuff that doesn't match. I don't even know how that happens. And then offensive flannel during the, the, the winter where I can't get to her. It's just too many layers and so thick. Time, time, time out, time out. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, dear. I'll get to that. I'm talking about what I say when she, when she is the wilderness. Yes, I'm talking about... <laughs> Y'all need to separate. You go... <laughs> I'm trying to inspire the men that when whatever you think is your version of ostensible pretty that is outward becomes the ordinary by which you compliment your wife, you're an error. If the only time you tell her she's beautiful is when she has all the dress and the, 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 the jewelry and the makeup dressed to the nines, baby, you look great. You're feeding the insecurity that that's the way she gets her security. Are you listening to me? You need to help her. Now, I'm not saying these, dear women, that somehow you need your man in order for you to feel how you need to feel properly. Find your security in God. But there is nothing about our relationship that is supposed to be independent of how we view our relationship with God meaning that we are supposed to be helps to one another even though we can't find all of our security through one another. So we are interdependent, not codependent. And we can't do well without the interdependence working well. A woman should not have to struggle every day to overcome the idea of whether she's pleasing to her husband. If you do struggle with it and overcome, congratulations. I'm glad you found God. But I never want to make her struggle like that. I want to put her faith in areas where my children need it. 
I want her faith to be applied in other areas for your benefit in women's ministry. I don't want her to have to get up every day and spend 20 minutes in prayer trying to figure out, God, do you love me? Because my husband sure doesn't seem like it. Now, all the men are feeling a little beat up. I get it. <laughs> Ladies? I know, I know that um, sometimes the last thing you want to do is overly encourage your husband in his authority. Because you think he's got enough of it and he's not using what he has well. And you have to... Your hitch is tied to him. And the last thing you want to do is encourage him in the wrong direction. Because then you're going in the wrong direction. That's just, so how in the world do I tell my man I'm proud of him when I'm not? How do I tell my man he is the greatest provider when he's just spent $1,500 on a Vizio big screen TV? That we don't need. Ah, and you're just sitting. You know, sometimes to encourage us is kind of like encouraging your children. I'm not talking about little people. I'm talking about 15-year-old children. When they're not doing anything right. I mean, they don't even breathe right. They don't do anything. Nothing they do is right. And you are just pulling out your hair constantly thinking... Either, either, either they're going to die by my hand or God's going to kill me before I kill them. I'm not quite sure which. But you know they need encouragement. They don't need criticism all the time. They, they, so you have to find encouragement. Son, you got out of bed well today. how you just rose. Just amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm just so proud. <laughs> now, hyperbole is always funny. Exaggerative moments make us feel better about, about the, 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 the reality that we have to live in. But, but listen to me. Why in the world does God encourage you at all? I mean, how much do you do right? How much sin have you committed? How many times have you disobeyed? And yet all he does is send his Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to encourage you, to support you, to help you, to give you promises every day when we deserve criticism every moment. You didn't think right about her. Look at your eyes. What are you doing with your eyes, you idiot? Get them off that woman. Wait a minute. Your greed is just taking over your selfishness. You just, if you, I thank God we do not have superpowers. Because if you had superpowers, about five people would be dead on the way to church today. <laughs> dead. 
Somebody cut you off? <laughs> you, you just with a laser eyed visit. <laughs> we are so messed up. We have to constantly restrain ourselves from being wrong, not just doing wrong. And God encourages you. <laughs> Every day. Every day. So wives, for your own benefit, tell your man he's great. Thank him for bringing home the money. Half of it. <laughs> Thank him for not hanging out at the bars with the guys. Thank him for not doing drugs. Thank him for not going on the long trips with those fellas that you know what they do. Thank him. Honor him. And let me tell you something. I know you might tell your husband you love him, but, and I'm really stopping now. Yeah. I know you tell your husband you love him. But nine out of ten husbands, this is my own personal survey, nine out of ten husbands I talk to, I ask them this. Would you rather have your wife tell, tell you she loves you or that you are the finest man she's ever met and she is so grateful for you being a great provider? Without hesitation, those nine men say the second. It's switch for a woman. A woman doesn't take her identity from what she does. She finds a whole lot of security in knowing she is loved. We don't. Now, it's not that we don't want to be loved. We do. We take more from, how am I doing? How am I doing? And why? Because when God made Adam... When God made Adam, he made him, and what did he do immediately after he made him? Put him in the garden and said, work. And so there is a distinction between us taking our identity from what we do and who we are. Big distinction. But it is hard to separate him in a man because we are so tied, our identity and our ego, to what we do. And so we can hear an attaboy from our bosses. It's fabulous. We can get a raise, a bonus for good performance. We, we exceeded all of our quotas this month. Everything's going great. We just got promoted. That's wonderful. Nothing substitutes for you brides telling us we're great. Men will go into depression. They'll find somebody else, wrongly so. They'll find somebody else to tell them they're great. Now, men are full of lust, no question about it. They fulfill those lusts in wrong ways. But 80% of the men that have affairs don't do it for sex. They do it because somebody tells them they're amazing. I'm talking about affairs. I'm not talking about one-night stands. I'm talking about affairs. They do it because somebody is telling them they're amazing. Don't let all the flaws that are in your husband, and they are many, cloud your eyes from seeing the gift God had given you. I am done. <laughs>